Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Alex Narasta, and I'm a policy analyst here at Cato. And I'll be moderating today's event, focusing on Nicholas Eberstadt's wonderful new book, Men Without Work. In the wake of Donald Trump's surprise election last November, and indeed going back to the primary victories in early last year, scholars, economists, and pundits of all stripes have struggled to explain the triumph of such a populist outsider as Mr. Trump. Now, explanations range from political correctness to immigration to condescending speeches from Hollywood celebrities at the Golden Globes. And while all these and other explanations could have contributed to the rise of Trump and populism, the large number of men in prime working age who are not working is undoubtedly a major factor. But the phenomenon of men without work is not a recent one. It goes back decades. Nicholas Eberstadt's book, Men Without Work, is the most indispensable work out there, and understanding the development of this phenomenon of prime working age men who are not working or even looking for a job, and at the many potential causes of this troubling phenomenon from welfare to incarceration, labor market regulations, to even demand-side factors that diminish demand for these workers. Following Dr. Eberstadt's discussion of his book, my colleague David Beer will comment on the findings and relate them to immigration. Now, without any further ado, because you all came here to listen uh, to these experts and to hear about this book, allow me to introduce our speakers. Nicholas Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, where he researches and writes extensively on demographics and economic development generally, and more specifically on international security in the Korean Peninsula and Asia. Domestically, he focuses on poverty and social well-being. Dr. Eberstadt is also a senior advisor to the National Bureau of Asia Re Asian Research. He's the author of many books and articles and has offered invited testimony before Congress on numerous occasions and has served as consultant or advisor for a variety of units within the U.S. government. His appearances on radio and television range from NPR to CNN. Dr. Eberstadt has a Ph.D. in political economy and government, an MPA from the Kennedy School of Government and an AB from Harvard University. In addition, he holds a Master's of Science from the London School of Economics, a wonderful university, I might add. In 2012, Dr. Eberstadt was awarded the prestigious Bradley Prize. David J. Beer, immediately on my right, is an immigration policy analyst here at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He is an expert on visa reform, border security, and interior enforcement, and his work has been cited widely. From 2013 to 2015, Mr. Beer drafted immigration legislation as a senior policy advisor for Congressman Raul Labrador of Idaho, a member of the House Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Immigration and Border Security. Previously, he worked as the immigration policy analyst at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and most recently as the director of immigration policy at the Niskanen Center. Mr. Eberstadt, Dr. Eberstadt. There we go. Uh, Alexander, thank you for that lovely introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Uh, it's a uh, special sentimental pleasure for me to be uh, over here at Cato. I think the first time I uh, was invited by my friends from Cato to talk. It was uh, down at different headquarters you had uh, down Capitol Hill back about 30 years ago. And uh, your uh, friendly competitors and well-wishers from up the street have always wonderful to see what you all are doing. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to I'm going to talk today about what I uh, regard as a sort of a quiet calamity that has befallen the United States. And it's not a new problem. It's a problem that has been gradually building for at least half a century. Uh, this is the uh, collapse of work for men. And I'm going to try to show you in the next few minutes that there's absolutely nothing good that has come of this over the last two generations. Um, we live in what we might uh, describe in the USA these days as uh, America's uh, second gilded era. 
I think you'll recall that the first Gilded Era was at the end of the 1900s, was the time of the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and a lot of the great houses that have been uh, built in Washington and elsewhere. Um, our second Gilded Era is uh, similar in some ways, different in others. Uh, since the year 2003, uh, very different sorts of trends have emerged in the US economy. If you just look at wealth generation, there's been nothing like it in history. Uh, the United States private wealth holdings more than doubled in nominal terms from 2000 to the present. I don't have a slide for that. You'll have to take my word for the moment. Um, and uh, most recent reading is over $90 trillion. If you think of a notional family of four, that averages out to over a million dollars. It's been a phenomenal generation of wealth. Nothing like that's happened anywhere else in the world. Um, on the other hand, if you look at what's happened to the real economy, to the macro economy, uh, the United States performance since the year 2000 is, uh, I think my most charitably be described as indifferent. Uh, half the per capita growth rate of our historic post-war growth rate. If we had just kept on the historic post-war growth rate, per capita output in the United States would be 20% higher than it actually is today. That's the growth gap that we've suffered since the year 2000. So wealth looks great. The economy looks uh, at best middling. And if you look here, if you look at what's happened to employment, it's been kind of a disaster. Um, <clears throat> this is, these are the work rates, the employment to population uh, ratio for men and women over the age of 20 alike. And it's kind of, if I had a uh, caption to put over it, I think it would be something like, uh, help, I've fallen down and I can't get up. Um, take a look. Where's the recovery? Oh, um, I forgot, there hasn't been one. Um, <laughs> This is if you take men and women together. But if you take the situation for men, it is all that much worse. Here we go. Uh, let's look at the work rates for the post-war era as a whole. Uh, what you see is a sort of a staircase going down with, uh, in accordance with the business cycle. This is, uh, this is men over the age. One of the blue line is men over the age of 20. You can see how steeply and conti almost continuously this has gone down. Uh, you can say, Everstat, you're cheating. Population aging has occurred for our population over the age of 20. Fair enough. Look at the gray line. That's the 25 to 54s. Not a whole lot of retirement age people in the 25 to 54 group, right? You can see from 1965 to the present, we've dropped uh, really dramatically. If you flip it around, you can see this a little better. This is the percentage of men without paid work in the 25 to 54 population, civilian non-institutional population, uh, in 2015, about one in six men in the United States had no paid work at all, not an hour in a month at any wage rate. So what does this look like? It is not hyperbolic to say that this looks like the Great Depression. Uh, if you can see these numbers up here, uh, in the back you may not be able to. I can do the reading for the blind thing. Um, in, in, in 1940, which is really the last year of the Depression for which we have any good data, work rates, employment to population ratios, were actually higher for guys than they were in 2015. They were higher for prime age guys, the 25 to 54s. They were higher for guys between 20 and 64. Any way you want to slice it or dice it, the situation was worse in 2015 than it was in 1940. So it is not hyperbolic to say that we have a depression scale problem affecting men in Ray work in the US today. In 2016, the situation was only fractionally, uh, infinitesimally better than in 2015. <clears throat> so why, why has this happened? In arithmetic terms, the reason for this collapse of work for men has been a flight from work. 
by men in the periods especially since 1965. Um, I show three different measures of labor force participation rates of the proportion of guys in the workforce in relation to total population. The top one is for, uh, is for prime age men. The one in the middle is for guys 20 to 64. The bottom one is for 20 plus. Take your pick. They're all going in the same direction. It's a long-term trend down. And here's the here's a problem. We deal with a metric for gauging the health of the labor market, which is kind of like uh, trying to figure out how large our musket inventory is if we were trying to figure out our military preparedness or how many horses we have for our cavalry. It's, a, it's an index which was devised for the last war. Uh, the unemployment rate is what I'm talking about. Uh, the unemployment rate was a terrific rate for measuring the health of labor markets when there were just two statuses for men of working age, uh, having a job or looking for one. But now we have a new world in which there are three statuses. In our modern era, uh, working age guys can either have paid work, they can, be out, uh, they can be out of a job and looking for one, or they can be entirely out of the labor force. They can be <clears throat> not in labor force, neither working nor looking for work. And over the past 50 years, that is the fastest growing group in male working age populations in the United States. And this little graph tries to show that. Uh, it's a total headcount graph, month by month, of the number of prime age guys who are unemployed and the number of prime age guys who are not even in the labor market, who are just totally out of the game. The gray line is the people who have left the labor market altogether. And you'll see that nowadays, for every one guy in this prime key critical age group, the prime working age group. For every one guy who is unemployed, there are three guys who are neither working nor looking for work. So if you follow the unemployment rate, you'll never understand what's actually happening in the deep reality of the American labor market for guys. Um, I wanted to make a comparison with the situation in other countries. For every affluent industrial democracy, there has been at least some decline in workforce participation for prime age guys over the last 50 years. Um, and this, you know, this isn't a kind of like a modern art painting. Uh, the only thing that you really need to pay attention to is the dark black jagged line. That's the United States. And you will see that over the past 50 years, the United States has won the race to the bottom in terms of labor force participation rates in relation to other affluent Western economies, Western Europe, Japan, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, it's, it's quite dispiriting to see this. It's also quite curious because we know that the United States has by no means uh, suffered the slowest economic growth over this period of any rich country. And we're also constantly reminded that the United States has by no means the most generous social welfare state of any of these rich economies. So what is going on here? Um, the mystery we'll, I'll try to come back to and I'll try to offer at least some clues to. Um, let me move back for a second. I want to talk just for a moment about who's in this army of 7 million unworking men of prime ages between 25 and 54. For there are about 7 million men in this critical group who are entirely outside the labor force today, neither working nor looking for work. If you have a group of 7 million guys, you've got pretty much some of everybody in the country, right? That's a big group. But there are some who are more likely to be in this group than others. And I think you know this general story. <clears throat> With respect to ethnicity, 
uh, African-American guys are more likely to be in the pool. Although, interestingly enough, uh, among people of color, Latinos are more likely to be in the workforce than the general population of the United States. Um, as far as education is concerned, people with lower educations, especially people without high school diplomas, are way overrepresented in this pool. Um, there are also people who are overrepresented in Ray family status. Never married guys are way overrepresented in this group. And as far as immigration is concerned, um, native born Americans are overrepresented. Uh, foreign born American, foreign born guys in America are more likely to be in the labor force than the national average. But we are not entirely uh, defined by social probabilities. And I want to show you uh, just a little bit of evidence which speaks to how important human agency is in this overall tableau. I've told you already that African-American men are way more likely to be out of the labor force than others in the United States. But take a look at this, okay? Um, the blue line is never married white guys. The gray line is married African-Americans. Um, marriage, uh, pardon the verb, trumps race here in, uh, in America. It's more it overcomes what we see otherwise as ethnic differentials or disadvantages. Um, and here's another thing. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, how generally disadvantageous it is to have uh, no high school degree as far as working uh, labor force odds are for prime age men. But um, one of those lines is married high school dropouts, and one of those lines is unmarried guys with a college degree or more. And I won't tell you which or which, because it doesn't matter. You see, uh, the marriage overcomes, uh, in effect, the educational gradient that we see in the United States today. And, um, and finally, I wanted to show you another one. Uh, the blue line is uh, native-born guys with a college degree or more. The gray line is foreign-born guys uh, with less, with, uh, who are high school dropouts. They're not identical, but they're very, very close. So the lesson here, I don't think, is that there's some particular magic in a wedding ring or in a green card. It's that... Uh, there are all sorts of attitudes and motivations and values uh, that tend to be associated with marriage or tend to be associated with the people who have migrated here. And uh, people are not entirely helpless in the face of social odds. Um, I wanted to talk for just a moment about the pool of unworking men and what they do all day. I tried to look into this by examining the Bureau of Labor Statistics so-called time use surveys. We have to remember what that great uh, social scientist, Dr. Gregory House, MD, said. Everybody's a liar, surveys, right? So we take the survey information as it is, and we uh, use it carefully. What do we see about the reported patterns of daily life for guys who are outside of the workforce? Well, it's, I would say it's pretty dispiriting. Um, according to what they say, uh, men outside of the workforce basically don't do civil society. They don't do religious activities. They basically don't do charitable activities. They don't do volunteering. They don't do an awful lot of help with children or help with other family members, even though they have, let us say, an abundance of time. Uh, they don't do a whole lot of chores around the house. What they do is watch. They watch TV, DVDs, internet, handheld devices, and they do it as if this were a job. Uh, 2,100 hours a year. Um, I don't know how that helps one get back into the labor force. It looks like a terrible, terrible waste of human potential. And when you remember what uh, Professor Alan Kruger at Princeton uh, 
reported just a few months ago from one of his studies that half of these guys are taking uh, pain pills every day. It's an even more dispiriting uh, vision, I think. So what, what's the reason for all of this? <clears throat> well, there, we can talk about demand, we can talk about supply, we can talk about institutional barriers. And I'd say the, uh, I hate this word, but the conventional narrative is that demand is the main driver of this, that it's globalization and trade and loss of manufacturing jobs and other things with which you're all familiar. And there's obviously a lot of truth there. This is a very important part of the phenomenon. But I don't think it tells us the entire story. Um, why not? I'll show you three quick graphs, which I think require us to qualify that narrative. Uh, the first is the trend for exit from the labor force, the proportion of inactive men of prime working ages from 1965 to, what do we have, 2016. It's almost a straight line. Show me the recessions. Show me the Great Recession. Show me the periods of economic boom. You can't, because it's almost a straight line. Um, that isn't what happens when demand is a big part of your story, or the dominant part of your story. Also, and I think we mentioned this, uh, alluded to this just a few moments ago, um, if there were a, uh, a demand-driven uh, narrative for the very poor performance of less educated men in the United States, you wouldn't expect to see a ginormous gap in labor force participation rates between foreign-born high school dropouts and native-born high school dropouts. But uh, guess what we have here? Needs to be explained. Finally, if we had a, uh, if we had a dominantly demand-driven storyline here, uh, you would think that the labor force would come to equilibrium after big shocks and that there would be a sort of an equalization or a tendency towards equalization of labor force participation rates between states in the United States. Nothing like that has happened. It's gone actually in different directions from that. Uh, and there is more disparity, more difference at a state level today than there was 10 years ago. Uh, 10 years ago, then 20 years ago, 20 years ago, then 30 years ago. And guess what? Some of the states with the worst profiles, like Maine, abut states with some of the best profiles, like New Hampshire. That's not a story that can be explained by the demand guys. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about just one aspect of the supply side, which is disability. Um, there's quite a bit of confusion, I think, in the academic literature about the prevalence of uh, disability payments uh, in the United States. That's because uh, Uncle Sam forgot to have a central office that uniquely identifies people who are on uh, disability benefits. Um, I couldn't get a perfect read on this, but I did go to one uh, census survey that tries to track uh, program participation. Uh, when you look at that, uh, look at the bottom uh, bold-faced thing, um, uh, almost three in five men who are out of the labor force of prime working age are receiving at least one disability benefit. Uh, about a million report that they're receiving at least two disability benefits from at least two different programs. Um, you can't live a princely life on this. It's, again, it's a terrible waste of human potential. But it does provide an alternative to being in the workforce. And I would never say that this has caused the problem because I can't say it. I can't prove it. What I can show you uh, incontestably is that it has financed an alternative lifestyle. Um, skip that. So now for the last part of our mystery program. Um, remember I said that the United States horrible performance in uh, declining labor force participation rates seemed to be a bit of a puzzle because our growth rate is actually better than a lot of other rich countries and our welfare state isn't as uh, generous. Um, here's one way that the United States is unique 
in uh, relation to its peers. We have sentenced and incarcerated a much higher fraction of our adult population over the last two generations than anybody else, uh, anybody else in the rich world, certainly. Um, some demographers have attempted to estimate how many American, living Americans have been sentenced to felonies. Uh, they had to do this because the government forgot to ask this itself. Um, by the year 2010, according to these demographers, about 20 million adult Americans had a felony conviction in their biography. Today, that would be about 23 million. And since you know that there are about two plus million uh, people behind bars, that means that we now have 20 million people in the United States, overwhelmingly men, who are at large in society but have at least a felony conviction. Uh, millions have served prison time as well. Uh, one in eight adult men now has, uh, not behind bars, one in eight adult men now has a felony conviction or more in their background. So. <clears throat> Uh, when, I, when I started uh, work on this book, I thought, you know, for due diligence, I was just telling Alexander that, I thought for due diligence in the last chapter, I'd just go to the statistical abstract and find out what the work rate was for men who had felony convictions. And I found out that there's absolutely no information collected like that by the US government. Uh, it's a, a, a enormous, and I would also suggest a shameful lacuna in our information system for a democracy that presumes to make uh, policy on the basis of evidence. So I had to go uh, look in different directions, and I found uh, some non-government surveys, which had some information about uh, crime and uh, criminal behavior, as well as all the social and economic stuff. And that's what I have on here. Um, the short version of this is, when you look in these surveys, it doesn't matter what age the guy is. It doesn't matter what ethnicity the guy is. It doesn't matter um, even what educational background the guy has. If he's been to prison, he's way more likely to be out of uh, the labor force than his counterparts who only have an arrest record. And his counterparts who only have an arrest record are in turn way more likely to be out of the labor force than people who've never been in trouble with the law. It's completely commonsensical, but you can't find that in US government statistics. Uh, to conclude, I would say that we see, I think, from these data uh, maybe a bit of a uh, policy agenda for how we get men back into uh, work if we had 1965 work rates in the United States today, by my calculation, we'd have almost 10 million more men with paid work. Just think how different our nation would be today if we had 10 million more guys with paid jobs today. Um, most important, I think, however, is to keep a spotlight on this. It is a shame and also a bit of an amazement that this problem could be invisible for so very long. And I think it's for all of us to make sure it doesn't stay invisible anymore. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. And uh, thank you, Nick, uh, for your excellent presentation and for writing such a well-researched book. Uh, as Alex said, I'm Cato's other immigration policy analyst. When I first read Nick's book, I thought of the Supreme Court case Lochner v. New York. As many of you know, in the late 19th century, New York's nativist labor unions lobbied for a law that banned working more than 60 hours a week at a bakery. Joseph Lochner, a German immigrant, was targeted for prosecution, and he challenged the law all the way to the Supreme Court. And in its Supreme Court brief, New York admitted that the law targeted, targeted immigrant bakers. But it said that the law was justified because, quote, there have come to New York great numbers of foreigners with habits which must be changed, meaning they just work too darn much. And so this divide between immigrants who want to work hard and long and certain Americans who want to work less is an old one. 
And for just as long, immigrants have been blamed for Americans working less. And I thought Nick's book would be a good opportunity to explain why the Joseph Lochners of today are working more than those who are born here. It's also useful to delve into a specific group. Uh, just saying that immigrants work more than others doesn't explain much. It makes them seem as if they have some sort of special powers that enable them to get jobs. They don't. Okay, so I'm going to focus this presentation on uh, prime age men without a high school degree. Uh, the truly the lowest rung of the skills ladder. Uh, because research has shown that this demographic is really the only one that uh, may be negatively impacted by immigrant competition. So whenever I say low skilled, I'm re referring to that uh, category of workers. All right, so the, so the story really begins with this basic fact. Uh, Low-skilled foreign-born men hold jobs at dramatically higher rates than low-skilled native-born men in the United States. As you can see, the difference in the employment rate for immigrant men and native-born men has been consistently wide and growing wider. More than 87% of prime-aged immigrant men have a job while just 56% of similarly educated uh, native-born men do. So what explains the 44% of native-born men in their prime who are not working? I'm going to focus on five factors, uh, most of which Nick discussed generally. Uh, workforce participation, welfare, crime, marriage, and internal migration. The first factor is that native-born men are leaving the labor force. As you can see, nearly one in three native-born men without a high school degree are out of work and are not looking for work, compared to only one in 13 immigrant men. An astounding difference. Obviously, it's difficult to obtain employment if you don't first look for it. Uh, so what happens when you focus only on those who are looking for work? The difference in the employment rate between immigrants and natives is 30%. The difference in the unemployment rate, which only includes those who are looking for work, is only 5%. Just looking for work makes a great difference. The second factor is welfare. Uh, for many years, the United States has limited welfare to immigrants. Temporary workers and unauthorized immigrants are completely barred from means-tested public benefits, while legal immigrants must wait five years before they're eligible. As an example, 17% um, of all families in poverty are headed by an immigrant, while 26% of families in poverty who are headed by an immigrant do not have access to uh, TANF. That means the 26% of the population that's not on welfare are, uh, are headed by immigrant families. In 2014, Cato published a report showing that across a broad range of programs, this holds true. Uh, many immigrant men really have no choice but to work. The third factor is the level of criminality. Foreign-born men commit far fewer crimes than native-born men. As you can see on the left, in every census since 1980, foreign-born men overall were two or three times less likely to be incarcerated than native-born men overall. When we focus on those who are most likely to be here illegally, uh, Mexican-born men without a high school degree, and compare them to native-born men without a high school degree, these immigrants are five times less likely to be incarcerated. Obviously, criminality demonstrates social issues that can prevent employment even before an arrest. And incarceration, incarceration obviously, uh, prevents employment after their release. So the fourth factor, uh, which Nick also mentioned, is marriage. And just to underline Nick's point, social science is really unanimous on this point. Getting married and having children changes male behavior. Rather than being susceptible to short-term risk-taking, 
Married men, especially those with children, cultivate more long-term thinking and behaviors. As you can see on the left, native-born men overall, ignoring education and skills for a second, are about as likely as foreign-born married men to be employed. There's no difference, almost 90%. But both natives and immigrants who have never been married work significantly less than their married counterparts. This effect is even more significant among natives, as you can see. Now, if you look on the right, you can see that low-skilled immigrant men are nearly twice as likely to be married as uh, their similarly skilled native counterparts. Going along with this point, it's worth stress stressing that immigrants tend to have more traditional gender and family roles generally. In many immigrant communities, Mexican Catholics, uh, uh, Indian Hindus, Syrian Muslims, there's a social expectation that adult men have a family and work to provide for them. The fifth factor I want to argue is relevant here is that immigrants are much more likely to move to where the jobs are. Uh, obviously, this is true when they first arrive. They go to where the local economies are growing. But after they arrive, it's true as well. A couple of years ago, there was a really good news story about, uh, that highlights this difference. Uh, a woman confronted President Obama over his claim that we needed more IT workers in the United States. She said, my husband's an IT worker. He's out of work. Uh, how can you claim that we need more of them? President Obama said, OK, send me his resume. I've heard there's plenty of jobs available. But then when Obama followed up, he finds out that the guy was living in East Texas. He had a family there. He had a mortgage. His kids lived there. Uh, his wife had a job. And so he didn't want to move to where the jobs were in California, New York, or even in Austin. He's turning down jobs, job offers. Immigrants, on the other hand, often lack these kinds of attachments that discourage movement within the country. To take just one data point to highlight this, oh. uh, agricultural farm workers, 88% uh, uh, of agricultural farm workers who are internal migrants, meaning they move from farm to farm with the seasons, are immigrants. Uh, natives are much more likely to live on the farm or near the farm. So those are the five factors that I think are most relevant. Uh, workforce participation, welfare, crime, marriage, and internal migration. But a lot of people are going to say, well, what about immigration? Isn't it true that immigration harms the wages of these uh, lower skilled workers? Uh, well, there's an academic debate about that, but let's agree for the sake of argument. Uh, immigration still cannot explain this difference. And there's a, an easy reason for this. The National Academy of Sciences recently put out a major report on the economic effects of immigration. And it provides the following chart that shows the wage declines uh, for native-born dropouts. The chart is based on a couple of assumptions that academics debate, but we'll assume that they're true. That immigrants and natives are not perfect substitutes, and that high school grads and high school dropouts are not either. So, accepting these assumptions, this is what the chart shows. Immigration over the last two decades raised the wages of almost every skill category except for the high school dropouts. But look, it lowered the wages of foreign born high school dropouts by even more. Meaning, that if, less than the, if the less than 2% drop in wages for high school dropouts among the native-born population is driving natives to leave the workforce, then you must explain why high school dropouts who are foreign-born, who saw their wages decline by three times that amount, continue to work anyway. You also notice something else here, that Immigration is increasing the rewards for education. And so we've actually seen the number of high school dropouts in the United States decline dramatically. And as you can see, the number of high school dropouts who are working is falling faster than the number uh, of non-working native-born dropouts. 
the workers are graduating high school and are starting families and are building their lives. So the winners from immigration keep growing and the losers keep shrinking. Still, there is the, a subset of dropouts who fail to graduate or, and fail to look for work. And we can talk about the solutions for this group in a minute. Uh, but restricting immigration really just is not one of them. Thank you, and I look forward to your discussion. Before we begin the Q&A session, I'd like to use the moderator's prerogative to ask a question uh, myself. First, uh, Nick, would you like to respond to anything that uh, David set up there about um, I the issues? I thought it was really excellent. I thought that was really interesting. Um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask is you mentioned uh, Alan Kruger's work at Princeton and how a large number of these men who aren't working are uh, using, mis uh, abusing or using prescription drugs uh, while they are unemployed. There's been other work by uh, Eric Hurst at the University of Chicago where he writes about the role that uh, video games played, especially amongst men in my generation. Uh, would you, do you have any comments about that work? Yeah. Um the, uh, the work by Hearst and the work by Kruger, I don't think, are necessarily inconsistent. You can play video games while stoned. Uh, uh, one of the things which is missing from, uh, one of the things which is missing, I think, from Kruger's paper is the whole question of how the pain pills are financed. And this, I think, is an important question for public policy types to ask. I didn't mention this in my presentation, but there is, uh, there is a very important government uh, mechanism here, and this is uh, the Medicaid program. You can get, uh, you can get um, OxyContin, a month's supply of OxyContin for $3 a month uh, with Medicaid. You can sell that for hundreds of times more if you wish to. Um, it brings dependence upon government to a whole new meaning. Great. Uh, with that, we're going to move to the uh, Q&A portion of the discussion. Now, I want to remind you to please wait for the microphone. Please wait to be called on. Please wait for the microphone. And uh, please do ask a question. Cato is a libertarian think tank, but I will tightly regulate the Q&A <laughs> session. So uh, questions. Uh, this gentleman right here. for women, and in terms of the access to uh, drug abuse, is could you now say that opium is the opiate of the message? <laughs> the, the second question is easy, yes. Uh, as to the first question, that's a bit more complex. Um, a, uh, a, a telegraphic answer to that would be, we saw uh, both overall national work rates and female work rates rise together for over 50 years. Um, that suggests to me that the entry of women into the workforce wasn't replacing men, it was supplementing men. Things changed very badly in the year 2000. At that point, work rates and labor force participation rates for women, again, 20-plus uh, uh, prime age, uh, 20 to 64, however you want to look at it, started heading south too. Uh, so women and men have shared the pain in our new, uh, in our new century, I'm afraid. Nice question. Uh, this gentleman here on the end. Steve Delbianco, Dr. Everstadt, I have a question regarding whether peer-to-peer -peer economy or freelance was a factor in the data you discovered or has potential to solve some of these intractable problems? I'm speaking of people spending time fixing up their home or bedroom to rent it on short-term rental, Airbnb and HomeAway, someone driving for Lyft or Uber, has no employment again, or someone making crafts and selling them on Etsy and eBay. That kind of peer-to-peer -peer economy enabled by internet is never gonna be captured in an employment statistic. What do you think its effect was or its potential? Um, 
That's a very it's a very interesting technical question that you raise. Uh, the question of how accurately or completely the peer-to-peer economy is being captured by the BLS and by others. Um, Of course, Census and BLS and the others are very keenly aware of this development. They say, they say in principle that they're they're following this, uh, and there's no reason that their surveys should not be able to capture it. It depends uh, very largely upon the reporting of the respondents to surveys. Um, Of course, survey response for regular old nine-to-five jobs and your income off of that for your W-2s are always better than for capital gains or for social welfare benefits. So to some degree, we're playing catch up there. But clearly, there's enormous promise and benefit for our economy and for individual well-being there. My own impression is that this isn't, uh, this isn't a big ticket item yet. Um, if it were a big ticket item, we'd see rather different sorts of reporting on those who are out of the labor force. In the work that I was doing, the prime age men reported an average of seven minutes of work per day. It would be more than that, I think. Next question. Um, Right in the back there. Hi. Uh, The second guy was talking about um, the guy in Texas. He has a home, a mortgage, a family. And then comparing that to an immigrant who doesn't have that. Home ownership has always traditionally been the, 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 the main part of the American dream. And it sounds like having bringing all these immigrants who are, it's like lowering the standard of living for American citizens. So I don't really quite see the argument for that. And the other thing that's tying into with the prescription drug problem, I have read some very disturbing articles over the past year. Um, the one that actually comes to mind was actually about women in their 50s, and it was pain pills, and they're dying from this. And there was a similar one about men, too, and I don't know what age limit range it was. But it sounds like it's people who are just giving up because the quality of life for Americans is going down in this country. My understanding is based on the cost of living, wages are not going up. So I I just don't know why bringing in a bunch of unskilled third world immigrants is helping the American population. Yeah, so a a couple of things on that. My my point with with regard to the guy in Texas with the house, it's not to say that home ownership is bad. It's it's a good thing, but it's a constraint when you're trying to move to where jobs have shifted. And uh, if this guy had been living in, in East Texas for a long time and his wife had a job, and so it was a restriction on his ability to move to where the economies were growing and jobs were being created in his industry. And so it's one of the reasons why immigrants are working more is that they have the ability to adjust uh, quickly to a changing economy. Uh, The other thing is that you're right that housing is a major component of wealth in the United States. And immigrants actually increase that wealth by uh, buying homes and increasing property values in the United States as well. So there are benefits. The, The benefit of having a workforce that's quickly able to adjust to changing circumstances is that it really makes uh, adjustments uh, faster. So you have a growing economy in San Francisco, immigrants move in, that economy expands, and there's spillover consequences for the rest of the country where demand increases generally. And so uh, it's, a, it's a positive thing uh, for, the, for the entire country. You know, um, <clears throat> My friend uh, and colleague at AEI, Charles Murray, he has this thing called the bubble quiz. Maybe some of you have heard of the bubble quiz. If you haven't heard of the bubble quiz, Google it, take it. Um, The bubble in Washington has gotten thicker and thicker over the 30 plus years that I have been here. And I don't have the statistical facts to back up this assertion, but I think that the talking and the deciding classes are less personally familiar with the distress of large portions of our population than ever before in our history. Um, 
And I think that maybe that's part of what happened in this last election cycle with the populism on the left and the populism on the right. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be able to say about that. But certainly I was, um, I was really shocked when I started to do this work on my book, uh, Men Without Work, uh, to start to appreciate the dimensions of a problem that kind of was hiding in plain sight for the United States, almost a depression-scale problem. Why hadn't I heard about it before? There are a couple of dozen labor economists in America who kind of know about it. There are probably a dozen or so business reporters who know about it. But we'd hear about uh, we're at near full employment, near full employment with guys Work rates uh, lower than 1940. There's a sort of a disconnect there. This question. Uh, this gentleman right there by the door. Thanks, uh, Richard Morrison with CEI. Uh, Dr. Everstead, I thought maybe the, to me, the most fascinating set of numbers you had up on there was how men who are completely outside of the labor market spend their days. Um, as you pointed out, maybe not very productively, not involved in civil society or family care, certainly not as much as you might expect for people that much free time. I was really interested what you thought about the implication, what implications of any of this has for the universal basic income debate and how people who are on a UBI might be spending their time contrary to what I think are some very optimistic projections about how people on a UBI would spend their time. I'm very glad you asked that question. Um, I could parse the seven, the seven million man army I described uh, a little further than I did. Uh, about, about a million of the seven million are adult students. And if you look at the adult students, their time use is more or less almost like employed guys. Uh, which is to say that for the overwhelming majority, for the rest of the group, the neither in employment nor education or training, what the Brits call the neat group, it looks even more grim than what I was describing. Um, <clears throat> uh, there, are, uh, there are a lot of people in uh, Washington and uh, elsewhere who are attracted uh, to this concept for a variety of reasons, some for social justice, some because they see this as a really efficient way of shrinking the state, um, lots of different reasons for this. Uh, but you, I think, put your finger on something. The whole, uh, the whole question of what work means in life, the extent to which work is a vocation, the extent to which work connects you to the rest of civil society, or allows you to reinforce uh, augment your relations with family. Um, these are things which I think are missed in that discussion. And until we take a, uh, a real reading or sounding on the importance of work as a vocation, as uh, Dorothy Sayers said, we'll be having a somewhat impoverished discussion in that, in that realm. Next question. Uh, this gentleman right here. Uh, Dr. Eberstadt, you had one uh, chart that was difficult to look at that showed distribution of this problem by state, and I will look at that much more carefully as soon as I buy the book. But I wonder if you could say a little bit about urban-rural. Uh, is this in traditional area, depressed areas like Appalachia? Is it been, over time, more concentrated in Rust Belt areas as they, as they have declined? Uh, and to what extent is it coterminous, as I suspect it is, with these other problems that we've seen of premature mortality uh, among, among males? Thank you. Um, as far as, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty well-distributed phenomenon. You can, find, uh, you can find this pretty much all around the U.S., regardless of metropolitan concentration, suburban, exurban, rural. Um, although our rural population is relatively small, it is disproportionately affected by this, more than other areas. One can see a little bit more disproportion there. Um, Yes, of course, uh, West Virginia, Maine, other places, uh, you see this problem at a state level. 
Um, <clears throat> as far as mortality, premature mortality you were asking about, uh, yeah, and just as the woman in back asked about this, I, I would say that the most, um, the most alarming study that came out on this uh, was a nationwide study by Ann Case and Angus Deaton of Princeton that came out at the end of 2015. Again, a, a huge American problem that was kind of hiding in plain sight for those of us inside the bubble. Um, showing that for men and women who are white with lower educational attainment, high school or less, there had been a spike in death rates between 1999 and 2013, and an awful lot of this increase could be accounted for by poisonings, which is opium poisonings, really, by cirrhosis of the liver, we know what causes that, and by suicide, we know what causes that. Um, it's, it's a pretty grim picture. And, I mean, I have to tell you, ex cathedra, uh, I'm kind of an interloper on the United States. Most of the stuff I do is on other countries. Um, I did a lot of stuff on communist and post-communist countries. Um, I never thought I'd live to see the day when life expectancy was higher in East Germany than in the United States. And I wasn't sure that what we've just seen with this increase in white mortality could happen here. It can happen here. Thank you. Um, right there in the middle on the side. Yeah. Uh, sorry, right. Sorry, it was the man right behind you. Dan Griswold with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Dr. Everstadt, fascinating. It, a lot of uh, diagnosis. Uh, I'm kind of grasping for the policy implications of it. Uh, you mentioned Charles Murray. His idea is a ban on low-skilled immigration for a while. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. One of your big explanatory variables seem to be the incarceration rate and all that. Do we just not send those people to prison uh, at all? I guess uh, an open-ended question, what, it, what do we do? What's your three-point plan for addressing men without work? 12-step plan, yeah. Uh, so, um, yes. Um, I was very uh, I was very light in this book on recommendations because uh, first of all I'm not sure that I have I, I know I don't have all the answers and secondly I thought it'd be much better to encourage people from all over the political sphere to suggest their own. Uh, diagnoses and uh, prescriptions because it's only by having a big public square with a lot of people in it who have reached consensus that we're not going to ignore this again that we're going to be able to make long-term progress i think uh, for myself what i mentioned in this book was uh, three areas to look at and i don't have detailed plans on any of these just three general areas to look at uh, one of them is uh, revitalizing American business, especially small businesses, which uh, create the, uh, the huge bulk of American employment. Uh, we've lived in a net business death environment for many years. Uh, it wins on its own merits, but it also helps, I think would help with this phenomenon. Um, Completely overhauling uh, disability insurance. There's a reason we have disability insurance. We should have disability insurance. We shouldn't have a disability insurance program like the one we have now. Um, it's, uh, I, I think we'd be much better off if we had a work first principle, uh, kind of like uh, our friends in Sweden have uh, in their approach to these questions at this point. The Swedes, by the way, ran out of other people's money, which is why they came to this, uh, this conclusion. We're having a harder time on that so far. Uh, and the final question is about, uh, is about reintroducing people into the labor force after they've paid their debt to society. Uh, I don't think we really have a clue how to do that. Um, we've got a glorious laboratory in the United States with uh, 50, count DC, 51 experimental chambers. We could be working on a competitive federal experiment. We can't have an evidence-based uh, policy if we don't have the evidence. I think it's shameful that we haven't collected this information. We could start collecting this, inf we, could, we could collect the information on what the patterns of profiles look like for 
men on parole, men on probation, it would take about three weeks to do that. For some reason, no senator has raised their hand to ask for that information. And we have time for two more questions. Uh, this gentleman right back there. One of the differences between the United States and other OECD countries is the relative lack of what are called active labor market policies, which include job search and training and, and matching of employers to employees. Uh, can you comment on, the, on that and what its potential is in explaining this? And as a corollary, um, the relative absence of a safety net for, for prime age working men who are unmarried and don't have children also puts them, sort of their backup plan is the family. Um, and Eric Hurst's research shows that a significant portion of these men are, are living with their parents, enjoying mom's cooking and, and cleaning and so, so on. Uh, yep. So in, both in the absence of the active labor market policies and with this, what, what they use instead of active labor market policies, doesn't that create also a stickiness similar to what David was talking about with home ownership? where they don't have an incentive to be kicked out of the house? Excellent questions, excellent questions. Uh, I would say, I would suggest again, that we have an enormous uh, federal laboratory in which we can experiment with the actual as opposed to the theoretical uh, impact of different sorts of approaches to labor market policies. Um, and I, I, meant, I just mentioned the Swedish example. I think that's uh, opposite here. The whole emphasis upon training, there are lots and lots of different ways of doing training, and a lot of them are very bad. Uh, the, the emphasis in principle on training, the emphasis in principle on job placement, the emphasis upon incentivizing uh, showing up. Uh, one thing which we might also think about in terms of uh, this whole circumstance is the experiment that we did with welfare reform 20 years ago. Um, that w there were many people who thought that the, uh, the TANF welfare reforms of the mid-1990s were going to end with a, a social catastrophe in the United States. Um, they didn't. Uh, they actually worked out remarkably well, not in all stories, but on the whole remarkably well. Uh, one could say, well, Eberstadt, that's apples and oranges. Uh, looking at disability insurance reform now in our awful labor market versus the great labor market of the 1990s, um, and, and there's some truth to that. But if you take a look at the work that people have done in the Brookings papers, for example, on what were the, uh, what were the factors involved in the success of the, uh, of the welfare reform of the 1990s, uh, a good economy was actually a rather small part. It was changing of the incentives, which seemed to have had most of the impact there. And uh, you know, whatever, whatever one thinks about uh, single mothers uh, on uh, AFDC, single mothers are never idle. <laughs> you can't say the same thing about a lot of our unworking men today. Thank you. And uh, final question. Um, this gentleman right up here. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Daniel Pryor from Students for Liberty. So my question is, it was mentioned that marriage is associated with significantly higher employment amongst men. And I'm wondering whether you think that that might be to some extent have a trade-off between male employment and female employment. And what we're seeing here is actually um, a good thing for women on the flip side. That... Um, that less male employment can make for more female employment? Could, could I ask? Um, so more about marriage's positive uh, effects or at least association on male, un male employment. Uh, the flip side could be that marriage could have negative associations with female employment. Okay. Well, well, over the, I mean, I suppose you can't rule that out uh, in the abstract and in theory, but uh, the empirical evidence over the post-war era was that uh, 
was that marriage and the rise of female employment uh, were not inconsistent at all. I mean, if you take a look at the very large number of uh, working women who are married, the very large number of working women who are married and have children, this didn't seem to be a... Uh, an enormous uh, institutional barrier. I'd say actually one of the fascinating things that we can see, and we'd kind of compare this with the unworking men, is the millions, and I, I think tens of millions, of unworking women who successfully came back into the labor force after raising children or after taking a departure from the labor force because of children. Um, why did we see this sort of uh, success when we've got this other problem over here? Um, I don't know the answer to it, but my thought experiment runs like this. If you are a, uh, if you are a mother at home, you are never idle, as I was just mentioning. You, ne you don't have sick days. You don't have time off. Uh, you have a lot of skills, no matter what your educational attainment level is, that employers kind of like, like showing up and uh, being on time and knowing about schedules. Um, so we've run that experiment. What about the guys in Eric Hurst land? What about the guys uh, who are in front of the TV all day? Um, how, do we, how do we evaluate what's happened to their skills? Great, well, thank you very much. And this concludes the Q&A portion of our event.